listening is such a key virtue. Talking about your accolades and how good you may be is it, it is important. I mean, that's that's credibility to open that door. But listening about other people's experiences is critical and be humble while you do it. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast, and today we have an exciting one. We've got Nicole Forrest, CEO of Guest Services, Inc. Nicole, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. Great to be with you today. Very exciting. Yes. Look, you've got a unique background, and I was excited to, to talk to you about this because a lot of people we meet, they know they want to be in hospitality right from the beginning, and I want to get into your career. But did you have a hospitality job? What was the first one before you got into guest services? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm going to take you back to my primitive roots. I, uh, I started in hospitality at 12 and a half years old. My first job at that time was a dishwasher at a, in an upscale steak restaurant in Maryland. And I got to tell you, it was the best time of my life. I worked hard. I uh, made some great relationships and friends and worked my way up to being a bus boy. And, you know, the economics were pretty good as a young teenager in high school. And so that's really the foundation of my grassroots of hospitality before I moved on and went to Penn State University yep. and uh, then took a little bit of a different path after that. Well, let's get back to so 12 and a half years old. We're definitely breaking some labor laws at this point. Was it a family-owned restaurant? Was it a friend? Well, I'll tell you, Steve, I, you know, nobody questioned some of the labor laws at 12 and a half, but growing up in a small town, uh, it wasn't a family-owned uh, business, relatively small town that had a restaurant. And it was one of those things where, you know, when your friends are, uh, you know, following suit, you, you know, you work hard, play hard at the time. It just was something that uh, kind of, you know, created a circle of friendships and a popular thing to do. But I'll tell you, you know, dishwashing is a lot of people can appreciate tough job. And then when you add the steak restaurant to it with the grizzle and everything, oh, man. but you never thought twice about it. It was just something you did. And, and you enjoyed it. You, you know, you ate good for sure. And you made some friendships along the way. 
Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, nobody questioned the $3 and 75 cents an hour, I think was the going rate at that point. Well, as a 12 year old, you were rich at that time. So look, I started in high school and a lot of people, that's like their first jobs is in high school. Do you remember what it was like being around like adults at that time? Were they looking out for you or were you seeing things like, whoa, this is adult talk over here? Yeah, I, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I've had some good fortune and luck along the way, some really good mentors. And I'll tell you, I, I still remember the gentleman's name that told me how to wash dishes, Bob Pansy, you know, the dessert uh, woman who had been there for 10, 15 years, kind of took me under her shoulder uh, or her wing and looked after. It was almost like family and kids to make sure that we were on a path. But, you know, at the end of the day, they respected us because we were working. And, uh, you know, the owners of the restaurant, they all had everybody's back. So that type of structure, it felt like family, to be honest with you. And when you got out of line, you know, they called you out on it, embarrassed you a little bit. Yep. But, you know, they, you know, led with the carrot for the most part and uh, put their arm around your shoulder, which is a really good thing. And I still remember. Very cool. Is it still operating or has that been since closed down? Do you remember or do you know? It is still operating. Oh, um, so cool. Frederick, Maryland, believe it or not. Absolutely. What's it called? Uh, it's called the Red Horse Restaurant. They had two of them, one in Frederick, Maryland, and in the sister one was in Hagerstown, Maryland. And believe it, has only changed hands one time recently. Wow. Uh, but there's literally a red horse, the size of a horse, out in front, real rustic, non-corporate. And I loved everything about it and what it stood for. So, yeah, it's still there. Well, shout out to the Red Horse Restaurant. I'm uh, going to get some new followers out here. So you go to Penn State, like you mentioned. You do this through high school. So you're not like dreaming about getting into hospitality this time. You're going there for accounting, you know, solid, traditional job. Was that something your family pushed you to or do you were just good with numbers? How did that start taking shape? No, Yeah, it's an uh, interesting path. So my my family history was actually healthcare and medicine, both on my, my father's side, who was a surgeon, and as well as my mother, I, wow. both my sisters kind of followed that path. So I kicked it off trying to go pre-med. Um, and I'll tell you, microbiology wasn't for me at all. But I, I, I felt like, you know, being a people person, you know, I always looked at a glass half full in everything that I did. But, you know, accounting jumped out as me. I was always good at math. I was interested in transactions in business and very early on what accounting gave me exposure to is if you had accounting, you had finance, you had the economics and the marketing, you had to understand transactional based, how businesses work. And that was very intriguing to me at a young age. You understood inventories, you understood taxes, you understand the point of sale and how all of that kind of funneled up and how businesses were built. And the more I got into it, the more I was very interested. And because I was interested, I was passionate about it. I, the other part was I did well at it, which yep. was a good thing when you're in college and trying to balance the other social commitments that you have at that point in time. Yeah, I was going to say, so you went to Penn State, one of the most, uh, we'll say, social schools out there, always on the top of the list. So you did bounce it. Were you doing any like fraternity life? Was there anything like that? Or were you focused on school? Yes, absolutely. I was part of Greek life, joined a fraternity called Alpha Sigma Phi, uh, met a lot of good, good people, really that, you know, worked hard, played hard, but built some really long lasting relationships that I have today. 
Uh, I also played club soccer up at Penn State. Nice. Uh, which was very, very fun. You know, I was competitive on the sports side. Uh, but at the end of the day, I would say in the last couple of years, I took academics very, very seriously. Uh, not to say that I wasn't involved in extracurricular activities, but no, it was a great balance. And I also enjoyed the tailgating, the football, the soccer, the wrestling, all sports at Penn State. And I'll tell you, you know, I tribute Penn State. It was a big school, and it forced your hand to, to make sure that you navigate and find where things are, you know, build those relationships, one side of campus to the other. And I credit Penn State. One thing they did on the recruiting front was they brought a lot of large companies in, whether it was accounting on the business side from New York, from Philadelphia, from Pittsburgh. Uh, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and that was a big part on the accounting side where you had companies that you could meet and greet and ultimately interview with, which kind of opened the doors up to kind of that next phase of my career. Yeah, it's amazing to see, especially if that college or university really believes in it, brings the alumni in. Those are the connections that I tell people to go after those because those people really want to see you succeed, especially if you're a go-getter. They're all looking for it. Is that what you're seeing when you go visit colleges now? Exactly. Absolutely. Very competitive and you really have to take advantage when they are on, you know, on premise. Just say hi, smile, breaking bread to the extent, find that five or 10 minutes with them and make it personal. You know, some of the old school traditional ways of doing things, whether it's a handwritten card or, you know, mailing, mail mail really goes a long way, believe me. And taking advantage of that today is that little unique discriminator versus the email or the text, which is also important. But, uh, you know, that's something that I did along with a lot of my colleagues, and I think it voted well for us. Yeah, I think that's good. I have a stack of thank you cards I got for this year. That's one of my goals is to start sending out more thank you notes to people. Sure. So you got me remotivated here. It's been yeah. staring at me. Yeah. And uh, Penn State, we got a fan. We got Kajana Carter, former football player, is a friend of ours. So we love Penn State down here uh, in Miami. That's fantastic. So you graduate, you did pretty good because you get a job, it looks like right away over at PricewaterhouseCoopers and you start your career in accounting, right? Is that how it starts to transition? Yeah, no, it was a great transition. You know, PricewaterhouseCoopers, at the time it was uh, Coopers and Librand. They had just recently gone through the merger and being from Maryland originally, I was looking at the greater Washington, D.C. area. Uh, but no, I started uh, July 1st 2020 in Baltimore, Maryland, which was a great PricewaterhouseCoopers office. A lot of different clients from middle market to banking to mutual fund finance. So they had a good cross section of clients that was all over the stratosphere. In my first two years there as a new associate in the audit practice, I was on a number of accounts from H&S Bakery that made the the buns for McDonald's. And as you go through the grocery store, a lot of different baked type goods, awesome client, very unique with different type of accounting, uh, what I'll say challenges and yep. certain transactions to banking clients such as All First Bank and Mercantile Bank Shares that have since been consolidated and gobbled up. But uh, yeah, you know, some really cool, you know, mutual fund clients like Mason. You know, had a number of mutual fund complexes, the ABT Alex Brown, and on and on. And then, you know, healthcare clients, 
uh, from Johns Hopkins to GBMC to MedStar. And I got to tell you, you know, you had to adapt. You had to learn a lot of different things. You have clients that have different pressure points and getting that exposure, particularly in the Mid-Atlantic, really uh, gave you an idea at that time with different options for you to transgress into, you know, as you got closer to that senior associate or managerial level, what industry or discipline really piqued your interest because that ultimately is what you kind of had to refine. So, you know, I had the benefit of seeing and working with a lot of really smart people in different disciplines within that audit world over the course of the first, you know, a few years. And what I really liked was the banking uh, practice and capital markets. And I think a big part of it was, again, I just had great managers and partners that I aligned with in that area. And so, you know, as I got that banking expertise, I kind of built upon it. Some of the clients that I had three, four, five years into my experience really grew. You know, one of my big clients that I was very proud of was the Federal Reserve System in the United States, where they pulled some key managers out of Baltimore in the greater DC area and worked on that. Mercantile Bank shares that has since been acquired by PNC Bank uh, was one of my clients. And several others. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was about the people I worked with, a lot of dynamic partners, great leaderships, and a great, great culture with PricewaterhouseCoopers that treated their employees well. And I learned a lot, which ultimately led to an opportunity in, I guess it was about year seven or eight into their national office up in New York or New, really northern New Jersey in their SEC services practice. And, you know, very humbled and had the opportunity to do a rotation uh, up there, which was going to be a two-year rotation, get me onto that partner track. And it fell short in about the year, first year and a half up there, Steve, and it took a turn to the better, if you will, which led to a whole nother world for me. Yeah, so that's what I want to get to. But I want to walk this back because you're there for eight years. You're climbing this track where you have this career is working with some great clients. You're working with the government. You know, you, like you said, you could go up into becoming a partner, but then you make a big change and maybe a dream job for a lot of people. You join the NFL and you are now part of the Washington Commanders as their CFO. How does that happen? Because that seems like a very crazy jump to a lot of people to see that. Go. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it, it kind of goes back to establishing relationships, always keeping those bridges open and always communicating. But yeah, to get back to your, your, your question, one of my colleagues at PricewaterhouseCoopers who had previously left PricewaterhouseCoopers went to a private equity company a few years before I had left PwC, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And he called me out of the blue when I was up in New York, still working with PwC, and said, hey, Nico, I think there's an opportunity that you would really find fascinating back in, uh, you know, Northern Virginia, the Washington, D.C. area. And I said, ah, you know, I'm on a track. I love PwC. Yeah. He said, no, really, I think this is one that you'd be interested in. And I said, all right. His name was Chris. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, uh, 
it's with the at the time is with the Washington Redskins, now Washington Commanders, and they're looking at uh, potentially somebody supporting a variety of different uh, responsibilities there, as well as some other pieces under the uh, really, I guess, portfolio, if you will, with uh, with Daniel Snyder. And I said, look, I, I'm I'm open ears, very excited. I grew up, I was a diehard uh, fan. And, uh, yeah, Steve, I, I listened about it. Uh, you know, at the time, I think I was about 28, 29 years old. I came down to interview uh, with what I'll call maybe some of the upper brass of the organization. And, you know, after a series of interviews, uh, I got an offer to come down. And it was just too good to be true. And I took that opportunity. While I say I departed Pricewaterhouse Coopers. It, it was all on such great terms. I think everybody there was yeah, going well. Wow. Couldn't believe they were happy for me. And yeah, started with the Washington Commanders in uh, 2008. And it kind of set the path to a very, very dynamic industry within the NFL, within the Washington Commanders regime. Yeah, just a different world from auditing to very fast-paced altogether. Yeah, so it's amazing because... You're young. We said right off the bat, right? I was doing my math. You said 29, 30 at the most at the time, getting this job and growing up a fan. It's got to be amazing. We could talk football all the time, but this is really an entertainment company. It's a hospitality company. You have all different kinds of things you have to go do. Was it steep learning curve or was it like, all right, I learned enough at Pricewaterhouse to figure it out and they gave me some leg room to like work my way? Or was it like, get this done now and let's go? The answer is yes, yes, and yes, Steve. <laughs> um, here's what I would tell you. I think, you know, from a work ethic perspective and what I learned at PricewaterhouseCoopers about, you know, ethics and work ethic and adapting, those characteristics always followed me. You, you build thick skin, but you dive right in. But yes, the learning curve was, was steep and you hit the nail right on the head. NFL teams was only 32, but at the end of the day, it's almost like a major marketing company and hospitality company that happens to have a football team. Mm-hmm. And that's very important. Don't get me wrong. But between concessions and retail and entertainment and avid customer bases and, and season ticket holders, you have high demands and value propositions that you have to deliver on top of really the financial backbone and my capacity of CFO, uh, you know, to, you know, equip and make sure that the business is, you know, running well. And yeah, I just, you know, I was fortunate enough, you know, to get into a lot of facets of hospitality and my capacity as CFO across the board. The television light deals really were at the NFL level. But you really had to understand, you know, what that meant to the consumer and everything that comes along with it on the financial side. That's amazing. So I'm curious, and like I said, we won't talk about the football part, but like the business part, just like a hotel, you understand your, what your capture rates are going to be, how many guest rooms you're going to be selling. Is that similar to like, all right, we know how many seats we have. We know how many of these outlets we need to staff. Is it similar-ish? Very, very similar. You know, there's a manifest. There's only so many seats. You go out to your season ticket base, you capture them, you have renewals, kind of like hotels and hospitality. It's like, 
loyalty programs, whether it be with you know uh, a Hilton, the Marriott, a Hyatt, and so on and so on, and they're loyal through the contain. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. You have price points, you know, for season tickets. It's like your ADR, your average daily rate, yep. um, and so on. And so, yeah, it's it is hospitality. And then when you start supplementing that with food and beverage. You have concessions, but you have catering, very similar to hotels and other businesses in the hospitality space, national state parks. And you got to have good price points on all your menu offerings. You have to mix up. What is that menu offering, you know, for the traditional demographic of the burger, the French fries, the hot dog? You're always going to have demand for that. But you got to be ahead of the curve on other menu offerings, whether, you know, of course, Maryland, it's the crab cheese yep. pretzel, you know, to accommodate that Maryland base, you know, we're, we're crabbies. And then the brands, you know, that's also important. People have resonated brands at the time. You know, we had Johnny Rockets in the stadium, certainly have Phillips that was a little bit more of a local regional type brand, but you have to infuse different brand names for people that, you know, thrust into value proposition on that, different types of beers, craft beers, Crazy. all of that. Everything so, coming through. So when people are coming to you, is it, you know, like hotel world, we understand, like, well, here's our, especially in big companies, here's your budget, here's your checkbook for the year and by month and by week, this is what you can spend, right? So I'm sure you had all the managers doing those, but were you involved in the operations where like, hey, the GM's coming to you, like, do we have enough money to sign people or is that a whole different part of the business. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a different part of the business. At the end of the day, you know, the GM manage all the player personnel, the cap, and what that means. You know, from my perspective, it was what what is the level of cash and the amount of dollars and cents mm-hmm. that we have to but use with respect to where that goes. Yeah, that that's where saying Nico, we have this coming through. We have enough uh, sweet soul to make sure we cover this, right? Uh, in essence, I guess you could say that. Yep. So you're doing that, you know, four and a half years. I'm sure like every day has got to be fun. I'm sure it's hard too, but you've got this unique job that not many people get to hold. What happens? How does this change start to happen for you where you change out of that and go into the true world of hotels? Yeah, th- this goes back to the path, an interesting path for me. You know, four and a half years in, a lot of different things in the NFL. I always came back to, I wanted to make a real impact in a tangible impact with a company in growth where I potentially could either, whether it be having equity or be a CEO for a product. In the NFL, in the commanders, gave me a lot of those tools. And I'll tell you, Steve, as the fates would align, my story is very unique. I was out playing golf on a fateful Sunday afternoon with my father-in-law. You know, it was my, you know, one of my few days off. Yep. We got paired up with two gentlemen, a guy named Jerry and Barry. Never forget those names. Jerry and Barry. Kind of laugh. Jerry and Barry. And on the second hole, uh, Jerry asked me, what do I, you know, what I did? And I said, well, I'm CFO of the Washington Redskins. And he had this twinkle in his eyes. And he said, I used to be the CFO for the Washington Redskins. And I said, come on. And I said, well, what years were you there? Well, he worked under Jack Kent Cook and Edward Bennett Williams. And I said, well, you know, obviously I worked for Dan Snyder. So 
for the next two and a half, three hours, I learned a little bit about the company that he worked for, which was called Guest Services. And it happened to be that his guy he was playing with was the chairman of the board of Guest Services. So unbeknownst to me, it turned out to be an unsolicited three and a half hour interview. And unbeknownst to him and to me, but at the time they were, you know, Jerry was the CEO. They were looking for a CFO because a gentleman who was moving into the COO role, it opened up a spot. And, you know, look, I had my blinders on. I just, you know, I was like, yeah, look, you know, I might have some to my network. Um, and my father-in-law gave me an elbow and then my rib and said, you know, you ought to throw your hat in the ring. And I spent the last three hours learning about how wonderful this company was in the hospitality market, which really went back to my grassroots of 12 years old and doing something tangible and really the history around this company with hotels and national parks and lodging and on and on. And, you know, after that fateful day, two and a half, three months later, uh, I got an offer. And That's amazing. All from going golfing on a Sunday afternoon with no football that day. Correct. That is correct. And he had the same job as you, which is even crazier because there's so few of you that have ever had that job in the NFL, in the world. Exactly. Exactly. So you get this. Was it a tough decision to make or was it one of those like, yeah, I'm ready to move on. I like Jerry and Barry. I like what they're telling me. Yeah. I, you know, again, I had the good fortune of being around both of them for three hours, you know, and I'll tell you on a golf course where nobody really knew what would come out of it, you really understand the culture and the true character. So the decision, it was easy. And learning a little bit about guest services, you know, a hundred year old company that- 17, right? One of the oldest in, in the country. Exactly. Uh, very unique, not a public company, but the culture of, you know, what they built their foundation on, you know, it was a company not looking to have a growth curve like a hockey stick, long-term partnerships, very steady. Uh, but the key that really resonated with me is that I could bring value to the company and contributions. And knowing, you know, look, there are analysts breathing down your neck. It wasn't entity um, that we could just really build upon that and do something special uh, in the hotel space, in the lodging space, and very diverse um, food and beverage, contract food services, tennis, recreation, marinas, and kind of going back like from my audit days, different clientele, you know, it just was, there was this kind of common denominator, which was visitor services, elevating that guest experience, doing it the right way, and fulfilling it was very, very intriguing to me. And when you got there, like they might say, oh, this, look at this guy. You know, he came from the, uh, the Redskins. He's an accountant guy. He's not a hospitality guy. Did you face any kind of pushback from some of the, a lot of leaders in the companies in hospitality are alpha people. They want to push back. Did you get any of that? Or were you like pretty chill at the start? You know, I, I probably got a little bit of people kind of feeling me out. But I think maybe going to Penn State and being around people, I, was, I, I knew right away I could read my audience and while accounting was very strong and I was conservative, I, I also understood risk tolerance where from an operations perspective, and I think that's where the NFL and the Washington commanders gave me that balance 
where it was, hey, look, you know, there are business opportunities and take that risk. Whether it was special events and getting college football games in the FedEx field and helping drive that, the hospitality space, you know, I felt like I could talk the talk and I had some of the street cred of being in the trenches and war stories of true operations, which makes hospitality so great. When I hear stories about, you know, individuals that started in the back of the house or a front desk or night auditor and worked their way up to being an assistant GM to general manager, there's no doubt unequivocally, you don't have to go to business school to be a leader. That is the best business school where you work yourself through that rank and file and ultimately work yourself up into a district manager role at an RDL and ultimately a potential leader. So I respect that. And I feel I had a lot of those tenets, if you will, through kind of my story, uh, which is very similar to those truly, truly that came up through the hospitality space. I love that. I can feel the passion already when you're talking. So I could see that you had it when you started. You're doing that CFO role for seven and a half years. You're doing a great job with it because the company seems to continue to grow and do well. How do you start to transition that? Because it's very different to be CFO than to get in operations. Was it letting it be known like, hey, this is my plan. If I join you guys, I, I want to be a CEO. Or was it something that just kind of naturally evolved because you start drifting that way? Yeah, I, I think it was the latter, Steve. You know, as I built very strong relationships with the existing executive leadership, but I went on site. Uh, we have about 250 to 300 contracts, all domestic. I traveled. I shook hands. I met with our utility workers back in the house, and I wanted to learn from them. I'll never stop learning. And when I brought that back, you, you know, as you ingrain yourselves out into the field, it naturally allows people to gravitate towards you. I always had an open-door policy, and that was within kind of our existing group of employees in, you know, at the time we had about 4,000 employees, but, you know, from the executive leadership perspective, you know, there was some, what I'll say some pretty big transactions that again, I had good fortune that I felt like, you know, I executed within our team very, very well. We were able to buy uh, a lodge and spa at Breckenridge out of the Lehman trust in the first couple of years when I came to get services that have been a great success, success ever since that. There was another acquisition that we had on the recreation side that I was intricately involved in, but it wasn't just transactional base. We had to store that to build upon it. And some of those large scale projects, as well as some hoteling where we had some minority equity uh, relationships that we built upon um, a Fairfield down in uh, Richmond, and some other property improvement plans that we executed. All of that in total, I think, kind of set myself up well to take that next step, becoming chief operating officer. And really, at that point is when I was very excited that I could really not change, but elevate and build upon the direction of our 107-year history. Yeah, and you came in at a challenging time, right? Because you started, everything's normal. You go through where the world shuts down, and that's a challenge for everybody. Were you finding yourself leaning back on your kind of finance experience, kind of managing costs and all that kind of stuff in the emergency situation, or were you letting your CFO do that and you leaning in to making sure your teams were okay? Yeah, 
it was, you know what? It was always collective. Whether it was a COO, CEO, or director of corporate compliance, I got to be honest with you, it didn't matter what your title was. It's, it is just a title. There is importance to it. But we are always a team, and that kind of is attributable to our company and the culture. But you're right. I'll tell you, 2020, most challenging time, not just for us, but the industry as a whole, having finance and understanding yeah, the nuts and bolts of uh, being a fiduciary and being prudent definitely came into play. Yep. And between the health crisis, adjusting quickly, but taking care of our employees during that difficult time, and then pivoting to organically grow under those adjustments in the recreation space, pushing stuff outside, it was a whirlwind. And no doubt about it. One of the most dynamic, but rewarding, albeit challenging, times. And now that we're on the other end of it, I couldn't be more proud of our team, our company, and finding new talent out in the marketplace with some young professionals where, i got to tell you, the cream rises to the top in every facet and position. It's been awesome. i got to, admittingly, during that tough time. Yeah, it seemed like you were perfectly positioned because of your history in national parks and being outdoors because everyone was going to those locations during that time, right? Exactly. Yeah, because of our diversity and having that long history, Steve, our, our recreation business and our marinas and our kayak, our boathouses, mountain biking, everything outdoors, we had banner years when our contract food service division really was challenged the building populations you know, were maybe a tenth of what they were. They've since gotten much, much better. But that diversification as a company, it was awesome. But yeah, our national parts and really that grassroots of travelers that now said, hey, instead of going overseas or, you know, staying indoor at certain resorts, everybody wanted to be outside. And it was awesome. We really had to pivot and adjust and find ways to do things smarter because then the labor market was very challenged. But uh, yeah, we're still reaping the benefit of it for sure. I love that. I want to get back to that, but I want to continue on your piece because I saw that being here on South Beach as an executive at a hotel. Everybody wanted to be on the beach and it was just like overwhelming because you didn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you're doing a great job because you've always done it. You've shown you've done a great job your entire career and you finally get to the top of this company as CEO you know, how does that take shape? Because that's a big jump for anybody to go when you're operating, you're still not the number one, even though you might act like it. How does that feel once you get to that position? I'll tell you, it's a bit scary, no doubt about it, but um, it's what you train for. And, you know, you never lose tenant or, or, or perspective of all the things that you learn to get there. Number one, integrity is the most important piece of being a leader. Uh, no doubt, there's no compromise, number one. And in work ethic, and being attentive to uh, all of your workers. And I say, you know, if you had to characterize my situation, being a player's coach, that would be my style. And I was very confident that, you know, the perspective of, I'm not going to let you down. And I don't lose sight of it. Humble by nature, but I'm also you know, persevere. And I worked very, very hard. And I would say after the first, you know, six months, uh, you 
you feel good about it, but you also, it's a little bit lonelier at the top and you have to listen to your resources, your board of directors, your mentors, and keep an open mind. So that transition, you know, you kind of accept it and realize, hey, I'm at the top. It's a little bit lonelier. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of smart people and I and I brought a team in that I feel so comfortable with that it could be okay. But now it is fun and we can make, you know, make the right decisions. Not to say that, you know, all those decisions, you're not, you're not going to bat a thousand every time. You're still going to fail, but you learn from those, you know, those mistakes and, you know, how do you adjust it uh, to capitalize on it going forward? So, you know, I was very, very lucky to have a good predecessor who was the CEO 20 years to my, you know, prior to getting into, uh, you know, to, 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 to getting the CEO role. I still talk to him very frequently and I still talk to all my, you know, mentors from PricewaterhouseCooper, some with the NFL to this day, leaders who I've grown up with, and it, it feels good. So, you know, I'm, I'm in the role now a little over two years, uh, and I, I couldn't be prouder of really the team that I have around me. And I think that's what makes my role uh, successful to, to this day. I love hearing that. And you've got a team that really is doing special things. You've got a lot of fun projects coming up right now. And one that just opened up here kind of in my backyard in the Everglades. So I want to kind of hit on that uh, and then talk about what you're creating now. But let's let's talk about that because the Everglades in my backyard, I've lived here my whole life and I've only been a handful of times. Right. I hate to say that. I want to go more. So what have you created out here? Well, I'll tell you, first and foremost, Steve, we, we got we, we got your reservation book whenever you're ready to go. Um, but yeah, I'll tell you, it's uh, really, really intriguing and, and, and exciting. So Everglades National Park at Flamingo is a National Park Service contract that, you know, we're very humbled and privileged to be awarded in 2017. It's a, uh, a 20-year contract. And essentially what this is, is to bring back to life uh, lodging, a uh, 4,000 square foot restaurant on stilts. The lodges, we have 24 lodges on stilts as well, an echo tent village, and a lot of other development improvements. That was a culmination of five years. You know, it was challenging. Modular container buildings during the pandemic through supply chain, but we had the grand opening in October, and it's incredible. Uh, we launched in the first really the first 48 to 72 hours of opening up reservations, we had several hundred thousand dollars of, of just visitors that booked the lodges for this upcoming season. Wow. So we are absolutely ecstatic. We're open and uh, I couldn't be more excited. And this was a national park, you know, that was closed for some time, you know, going back two decades from the catastrophic hurricanes that really wiped out the visitor center and a lot of the marinas there, and it's now brought back to life. You know, we credit the collaboration with the National Park Service uh, leadership there. The Guy Bradley Visitor Center, they completed about the same time that we brought the lodges and the restaurant back. Uh, and so it just worked so darn well. And like I said, with international visitors and everybody, particularly in the regional market, Miami, and it's just this intimate experience 
under the stars. It's different and very, very unique where you can get a little bit of everything, Steve, from, like I said, the lodging, the interpretive boat tours, the kayaking, to biking, to some of the best fishing in, in the world out uh, on the Florida Bay. So we're really humbled to activate it. You probably are familiar with this. We've had a number of really good media reporters on yep. site from the New York Times, the National Geographic, the Boston Globe that are on site. And we couldn't be more ecstatic, you know, the next 20 years, keep it going. Yeah, it looks like you hit a home run. You've sold me today. So I'm going to have to take you up on your offer to go check it out in person with the family. But this kind of transitions into what you're doing now, because it seems like now more than ever, not just it's millennials, Gen Z, but everybody is looking for unique experiences. And you're starting to kind of hit on this. And so what are you working on now that's going to continue this legacy of what you've already built? Yes. One of the big things that uh, we released just a couple of weeks ago is a whole new grant called Adventures Unbound. It essentially unites over 50 of our properties throughout the United States, really to build those personal connections for visitors, for really those unforgettable outdoor memories and experiences. We launched our website and the platform to book at so many of our treasured locations and really throughout Florida, the Pacific Northwest, the Midwest, the Northeast, and we have a certain number of collections that are all a little bit different, really, really cool and cutting edge from our Sunshine Collection, which is really concentrated in Florida, to the Pacifico, to the Capitol Collection, right here in Washington, D.C., to Cascadia, out in uh, Washington State, and so on. So, yeah, we are really thrilled to launch this. In fact, uh, we've just had uh, a couple of our, our road shows. Uh, the first one launched in Chicago. Uh, this past weekend in Denver, we have some out in LA and San Francisco upcoming that uh, we're launching a brand. So we have a lot of our uh, stores and employees uh, really getting the word out there. So couldn't be more excited. You know, our website's out there, you know, for the, for the general public, it's exploreadventuresunbound.com. So I encourage, you know, everybody on the podcast and Steve for yourself and your colleagues, check it out because it's really cutting edge uh, and it's going to be really, really cool for the benefit of guest services. That's amazing. I'm excited to hear this because we've seen more and more people getting into this kind of outdoor unique experiences. Some are doing it really well and others not so well. I think we've dabbled with it with our company. We're looking to do something in the Redlands area, kind of integrating farming and outdoor experiences uh, in that short-term rental, but you're doing it at a high level because you've had this history of this company, you know, 1917, so much of this is built off of working outdoors. Do you think this trend will continue on or is this a fad that people will fall off of? I, you know, I do think it's, I think it's a trend that is necessary, not just for the visitor experiences, but, you know, to highlight sustainability in the embracement of all of the great natural resources within our country it's, it's ingrained into our business. I can speak for guest services. You know, this is what we were founded on with our partners and our core competencies within our national parks that we operate in state parks. Uh, and I, I really do. I mean, I think it lends itself to the consumer to have the highest level of 
value and experiences when there's so much competition out there, Steve, as you know, you have lots of options with you making your vacation and what you want to bring back is, you know, that was a really cool experience, whether it's for you and your significant other or your kids or your family or your sister or just by yourself. At the end of the day, you want to do something that's really unique and special that you can count on. And I think that is, uh, you know, looking forward with, you know, everything being so competitive on social media, people have choices. You really have to, uh, you know, discriminate yourself and how you elevate that type of hospitality. And, and we've done it through Adventures Unbound and we're, we think, we, you know, we're doing the right thing here. Well, listeners, if you're not driving, pause the show, go check out Adventures Unbound, because I think you're going to love what you see on there. And I know just from hearing Nico's story, you know that he is treating his team right. So if they're being treated right, they're going to treat you right when they're staying. But Nico, I know you've spent a lot of time with us and you're a busy man. I got one last question for you. So if young Nico was joining you, you know, out of the, the Red Horse restaurant today and he wanted to join your team, what advice do you have for him starting in this industry? So I think it's a few things, you know, work ethic, do everything a hundred percent. I know it's very simple and, you know, the schooling and the education is, is very important and that's great. But at the end of the day, the highest level of integrity, work hard a hundred percent in all that you do. That is one. Number two, relationships. Always keep the bridges open throughout your career, through your schooling, that will pay you back in spades. You know, people often talk about, hey, that person was lucky they landed this job. But I will tell you, good luck follows strong work ethic as well as strong relationships. And thirdly, listening is such a key virtue. You know, talking about your accolades and how good you may be, is it, it is important. I mean, that's, that's credibility to open that door. But listening about other people's experiences is critical and be humble while you do it. A lot of people are the smartest person in the room and that's great, but it is often overlooked and it does not go unrecognized from leaders and executives. Humbleness and humility in the hospitality space is a key virtue because consumers see it as well. And they know authenticity and sincerity very easily. And that's ultimately what, what makes consumers feel good. So I think those three, just based on my experience, if I was telling myself back when I was 12 years old, 16 years old, or 21, that will follow you through the career path. And that's a great advice. And gosh, I think just rewind that last 45 seconds, listeners, because he gave you a masterclass and what to do. So, Nico, I appreciate you joining us today. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and learning more about your company, and we'll definitely be checking it out soon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Appreciate it, and all the best to you and your endeavors as well. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.